This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio. The title of the book, The Symphony of Profound Knowledge, W. Edwards Deming's score for leading, performing, and living in concert. And the author is Edward Martin Baker, and Ed joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Ed. Uh, Hi, Steve. Good to talk to you. Well, great to talk to you, and you uh, look to W. Edwards Deming for great insights and leadership in the art of living. He's your mentor, if you will. And so what we're going to talk about as I look at the overview of your book about his teachings, it really comes down to helping leaders understand a individual's mental map, which produces improved human relationships, joy in work, and joy in living. So this is more than just business. This is overall life kind of guidance. Yes, uh, that's what I was trying to communicate. Uh, Deming, of course, uh, was teaching and doing seminars around the U.S. and other parts of the world from the 80s to the beginning of the 90s, and people tagged him with a label of father of total quality, total quality excellence, things like that, and they they kind of thought it was applying just to produ- manufacturing and production and, and business, and that, of course, was true, but it was much broader than that. It was a way of thinking that people could apply not just to their positions in, in, in organizations, especially the senior management, but also to the way they, they led their lives. Um, yeah, so you mentioned, I used the term mental map. Um, it, it was a new way of thinking to navigate through life, wherever you find yourself, whether it be uh, with your family or uh, in, in an organization. Why did you choose this kind of format where we have, and I'm looking at your table of contents, you have the overture, the first movement, second movement, third and fourth movement. Why did you format it that way? Well, Deming, um, over the years, he always had uh, his teaching, behind his teaching was profound knowledge, but he never labeled it as such until toward the end of the 80s where he had reduced it to four components uh, that he called uh, a system of profound knowledge. And uh, many books have been written, and he wrote many books, and uh, he often asked me to write a book, and I said, well, I'm just repeating what I learned from him. And then as the years passed, I, I began to to think that I should I should write this, and uh with the support and help of Aileron, uh, I finally uh, decided to work with them and, and to to write this book. But I didn't want to just republish something that somebody else had written. And then I realized, well, he he was a in addition to everything else, uh, being a physicist, mathematician, statistician, statistician, engineer, 
he was also a music theorist and a musician, and he he composed quite a number of pieces. And I thought, well, that that sounds like a really interesting way to um, to present his teaching in a different manner. And in fact, that's what he told me when he asked me to write a book. He said, well, your point of view would be a different presentation, and I think that would help people understand what I'm trying to do. So I finally came to that conclusion and presented it as, as movements of a symphony where there are parts, but all the parts are part of a whole because system thinking is the ability to relate the parts to the whole and see the big picture. And so you that was my, my thinking on that. And you spent 13 years with him at Ford Motor Company. Very fortunate. He came to Ford... You know, in 1980, there was an NBC uh, video, If Japan Can, Why Can't We?, which really stimulated a lot of uh, business executives to call him because the, especially the automotive industry was in dire straits uh, since the Japanese were kind of outselling American manufacturers in their products. So people saw this, and they invited him to Ford, and it took a while to convince him that Ford management was serious. Uh, some executives visited him in his home in uh, Washington, D.C., and finally he agreed to become a consultant to Ford. Now, he first came in January of 81, and he went right to the executive suite and read them the riot act, which they accepted because they, they, he had the reputation for being able to help organizations. And he came back in, in February, and I uh, there was a meeting, and I attended that meeting. And after that meeting, I, I uh, sat with him, and I, I showed him some work I had done and papers I'd written in quality and human decision-making, and it was based on theory. Now, I don't know if he so much agreed with what I had written, but he liked the idea that I was using theory to develop my thinking. And... Uh, he asked me what I wanted to do at Ford, and I said, well, I'd like to be in the uh, corporate quality organization, and he, he he didn't say much then, but a few months later, I, I had an invitation to join the quality corporate quality office, and uh, that began my 13 years with him, uh, 12 of them while I was still at Ford, and then in 1993, I, I had left in 92 and 93, I also continued to work with him, but it was a matter of um, working with him on seminars, and uh, later on in the in the uh, 80s, I took over and uh, managed his relationship with Ford. In other words, scheduled meetings with uh, senior executives and also with the shop floor. He did love to visit the plant and talk to the people and get firsthand what their experiences were. Now, in your first movement called Theory of Knowledge, uh, one of the chapters is management is prediction why don't you give us a little sense of uh, of that uh, give us a little insight in management is prediction yeah um i think in the kind of a way deming looked at knowledge uh, epistemology as some call it theory of knowledge the, the only measure really of a person's knowledge is the accuracy of his prediction in other words could he tell us what how the forces are going to come together uh, to, to produce certain results and events and outcomes in the future. So he said it's really management's responsibility is the future of the company, and to the extent that they could 
predict, which means not just to, to guess, but to shape the future of the company, uh, that is a key component of leadership. You talk about, in as you described what your book was about, about Dr. Deming's performance on stage, uh, especially his conduct of the Red Bead demonstration. And so tell us about that. Give us a little view of why you felt this was so important. Well, everybody did, and, and he did that the second day of his four-day seminars. And it was after that and his debriefing that people began to get a real feeling of his message. Um, he, 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 ha- he called people up onto the stage to play various roles of inspector or production operator. And um, it was real theater, Steve, I'm telling you. It was just incredible. It was captivating. And uh, he had people um, sample from this uh, box of beads. Uh, over and over again, and he used the results. You know, some of the beads were defective, and some of the beads were okay. The red ones are defective, the white ones are okay. And he, he recorded. He had a recorder plot the or re, uh, record the results of the of the experiment. And he he would insist that people don't produce red beads. Well, of course, the system wouldn't allow them not to produce red beads but yet after each day play after each demonstration he played the role of supervisor a really hard-nosed supervisor and would criticize those who picked too many red beads and of course over time people varied if they did poorly on one day they did great the next and uh, um, he was trying to show that management doesn't have enough knowledge of a system to know when the system is producing the results or when it's the individual. And most of the time, it's the system. And yet, people are fired. In fact, he fired the three worst workers and kept the three best ones after four days. And lo and behold, even though they were labeled as best, as one might in a performance evaluation, uh, half of them were below average, and they all did poorly. So uh, that began to get people to listen to his message. So he took his theory of variation, in that case, theory of variation, theory of a system, and applied it to a real-life demonstration, something he could do on the stage. Now, Jim Masonvale is that his name? Mackinvale. Mackinvale, the owner of Gallery Furniture in Texas. Uh, He attended one of these seminars, and people were saying... Don't follow Deming's advice. It's going to be disastrous. And yet, obviously, the rest is history. Yeah, you know, that was the same kind of advice uh, that people thought at, at, in business leaders and organizations. Like, well, why should I change? Uh, I've been successful doing it the old way. And that's what people told uh, Jim McInville. He built a successful uh, furniture sales business by doing things a certain way, the old way, which was incentives and bonuses and uh, uh, trying to motivate his employees by putting them in internal competition with each other and for the best results. And so he, his situation was at that time he had one location 
and yet he wanted to increase sales. He was up to about fifty million a year, which was pretty good for a, a single single store. But he was looking for ways to improve uh, his sales and grow the company even further, and he wanted to be able to do it through his management technique, not so much of uh, more more real estate. Uh, so he he did attend a Deming seminar with his wife Linda, and they kind of liked what they heard, and they said, "Well, gee, I, let me try it." And I thought that was amazing, given his management style. But he did try it, and of course, some people didn't like it. They they were all taken off commission and put on salary, and they were also put on profit sharing. So uh, that helped. Some people left. They didn't want to work under that way because they thought they were the best salespeople. Well, Jim said, okay, well, let them go. I'll, I'll bring in people that will be able to fit into my new management style. And, of course, he lapsed back once in a while. But eventually he continued to manage the new way and continued to grow the business. Uh, of course, now he has a couple of stores in, in uh, Houston. But I thought it was just amazing that a person like him uh, could make that kind of transformation of thinking, change his mental map. So it went from competition to more cooperation. A- absolutely. Not, not where people inside the organization could help each other. Uh, in other words, if one, one person couldn't close on a certain level of furniture, high-quality furniture, expensive, they could bring in one of their associates to help close the sale. So your book is based on the character and the teaching of W. Edwards Deming. As we wrap up the interview, give us some some closing thoughts on this man's profound impact on your life. Uh, he changed my life. I uh, went to graduate school. I studied industrial and organization psychology and some statistics. In fact, I had a teaching fellowship, and I taught... Statistics 101. And after spending time with him, I both learned, I learned that, number one, a lot of what I learned in psychology and industrial psychology, such as performance evaluations, the way they were conducted, was not appropriate. In fact, it could be harmful. And number two, I regretted the way I taught statistics. Not so much that I taught the traditional way that people learn in Statistics 101, hypothesis testing and things like that, but I never, I didn't know how to put it in the right context. And if I were to teach it again, I would put it in the context of Deming's teachings where you would teach uh, variation and what it means to look at data over time. So within the context of Deming's teaching, statistics would have been more appropriate and more usable and more practical. But uh, the way I taught it uh, then, I think students would still have had a tough time uh, applying it. We've been talking with Edward Martin Baker. He's the author of his book, The Symphony of Profound Knowledge, W. Edwards Deming's score for leading, performing, and living in concert. Ed, what's the best way to get your book? Um, Amazon.com. I think most bookstores will either have it on the shelf or you could order it from the bookstore or iUniverse, the publisher. Thank you so much, Ed, for joining us on iUniverse Radio. 
Well, thank you very much for, for this interview. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors, all quilters just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The title of the book, Red Sunset Drive, a ghost and a cop series. And joining me from near Des Moines, Iowa, is author Jan Walters. Thank you for joining me today, Jan. Thanks, Jay, for having me on your show. Well, this is uh, this is exciting because we have visited before, and you are becoming a, um, a well-recognized author. At least you will, if not by by now, in the near future, because this is the second in a series of a ghost and a cop series. Your main characters have stayed the same pretty much. Brett, detective detective Brett O'Shea, is your primary character. This one titled Red, Red Sunset Drive. Where is it located? Where is the story set? Uh, all the stories in the series uh, are set in Des Moines, Iowa. That has a uh, significance for you because you live in the area also, but your family history goes back to the 1800s as far as uh, being involved in uh, in uh, police uh, work, police duty. Correct, yeah. Um, my great-great-grandfather uh, was on the police department in the late 1800s. And my great-grandfather was uh, chief of detectives, chief of police in the 1940s and 50s. And then my husband served, and now my son is currently serving. That's incredible. The stories that they told you on a personal level, uh, how far back do you remember hearing the first story, or did they ever share any of their work with you? Well, when I was growing up, uh, my grandmother... Uh, was the one that really told me lots of stories about her father, who was the chief of detectives back in the 40s. And uh, uh, their their last name was Brophy, um, you know, strong Irish family. And um, my great-grandfather uh, was really uh, against uh, alcohol, you know, drinking. And so when uh, Prohibition was in effect he used to enjoy going around the city and breaking up stills and <laughs> he was a popular <laughs> guy I bet. Mm-hmm. alcohol <laughs> he was a popular popular fellow 
Uh, yeah, he was, I'm sure he was not popular. <laughs> now, did, did any of the uh, scary parts of those stories that your grandmother relayed to you, or were there any that she shared other than the fact that your grandfather was a kind of a character? Yeah. Um, the basis of the ghost was really kind of based off my great-grandfather. Uh, my great-grandfather um, did not abide by the rules a whole lot. He mm. was very independent, and he was suspended from the police department several times. Oops. And he even picketed the Des Moines Police Department, objecting to one suspension. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you mean he, he served them a, a, a ticket, like a parking ticket or something of that nature, or something else? No, he picketed with oh, a picketed. sign marching around the sidewalk outside the police department. I have. I, I was. I was thinking of Barney Fife uh, ticketing, <laughs> ticketing someone in uh, Mayberry uh, with a similar storyline, except I didn't hear it correctly. So thank you for correcting that for me. The story, yeah. Red Sunset Drive, is that also located or? or placed in Des Moines. It is. It is. And the reason it's set in Des Moines is our protagonist, Brett O'Shea, is a Des Moines police officer. The story itself, does it does it have a basis in reality, or are you just one of those creatives that can come up with all kinds of uh, twists and turns that will keep the reader occupied? Well, there are numerous scenes in here um, that are based on real-life uh, adventures, scenarios that police officers have to deal with, um, talking about you know murder scenes or the type of humor that police officers sometimes... Uh, adopt to in order to cope with the violence or the horrific scene that they have to deal with. Sure. So, in, in reading the book, if someone from the Des Moines area were to read your book, are they going to pick up on anything specific, do you think, or have you camouflaged it sufficiently that, uh, as they said in Dragnet, the uh, names have been changed to protect the innocent? Yeah. They, they will recognize um, some of the... Um, Oh, chase scenes, when I talk about specific streets or parts of town, I reference a uh, bar in here where one of our new characters, uh, Dragos, um, who is a vampire, he is basically from the 1830s. He's basically a, a man that was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And um, he's kind of under the influence of a older nobleman who basically is a vampire. Hmm. And when Dragos wakes up, he's in the current century in Des Moines, Iowa, has no idea how he got here, what's wrong with him. And he believes that this need for blood is basically a curse of a witch. Well, unfortunately, he does wake up around Halloween in Des Moines. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, uh, of course, spots a witch walking down the street toward a very popular nightclub here in the Des Moines area. And then it kind of takes off from there. So that's one of the characters you changed the name, but it's based on a real character. 
Um, Dracos no. is um, a fictional character. Okay, I'll let you have that one. All righty. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know you had you have uh, so, so much imagination and uh, integrity in your writing. You have over 400 pages in this particular edition. Uh, your last, your first novel was released not that long ago. How long did it take to complete the Red Sunset Drive? This one took me, mm, gosh, a little, little over a year just to finish the writing. And um, what I wanted to do differently in this book over compared to York Street was to get in the head of the characters a little bit more so the readers could kind of enjoy or go through the thought process with our two key protagonists, Michael and Brett, as well as the antagonist, uh, Victor. So there are a few more romantic scenes in this book as well, mm-hmm. and um, those were based on some of the comments from you know the previous readers and uh, the fans that follow the series. So I'm, I'm very excited for this book. It was... Um, given the Rising Star Award from iUniverse. Phenomenal. And um, I think it really will provide a well-rounded set of emotions for the readers. I mean, you should be able to, you know, laugh, cry, be scared, even cheer in certain parts. So... Super. You, you. If if the reader or the listener were to look at your photo on the back of the uh, of the book, you would get the impression that you are a mild mannered lady. How would you? Uh, how did you come up with the violence and the other exciting scenes in the book? Was that a stretch for you, or do you just have one of those vivid imaginations because you live in a very unique part of the world? I think. Just because, you know, the horrific things maybe you see on TV or the news and the read about in the paper, you can take those types of real-life scenarios and take them a step further and delve into the paranormal aspect Mm -hmm. to even make things maybe even a little bit edgier a little bit more exciting and um i yeah people when they read this and you know there are some very explicit murder scenes and things that um you know people might be a little squeamish about but um i think it's a well-balanced book between those dark suspenseful scenes as well as the interaction between the characters and the various subplots that are in the book. Now, the under, underlying premise is unique in that the young detective is working with whom? The um, young detective continues to work with uh, his ghostly great-grandfather, Michael. And the twist with this book is um, Brett meets Dragos, the one of the vampires, and kind of befriends him, and um, they develop this very unique relationship and end up working together to try to catch the vampires that are 
murdering female prostitutes in the city. You've mentioned that you're getting feedback from your first book that has inspired and given you some direction on Red Sunset Drive. What mm-hmm. is the general makeup of your audience? Is is it uh, balanced 50-50 with male-female, younger, older? How would you describe them? You know, it really is balanced. Um, I have readers, you know, in the 60s to 80 group, but yet when I go to book festivals and book signings, I have a lot of millennials and um, Gen Xers that will come up because they really like the paranormal aspect with the mystery and the suspense. Well, most mystery, so, most mystery and suspense writers have a deep-seated wish below the surface that a, maybe a Hollywood <laughs> producer might find this story and adapt it to the screen. Do you think that is something that you would hope to see in the future or might happen? I would, yes. I am definitely pursuing that angle. And um, to help that goal along... I recently hired a uh, Iowa film company hmm. who produced a book trailer for York Street. And um, a lot of book trailers will have, um, oh, music and text, you know, a lot of images. Right. Um, in my book trailer, we hired uh, Iowa actors to portray. Brett O'Shea, uh, Michael, and the killer in New York Street. And so we they acted out a couple of key scenes as well as, you know, we kind of then flashed through some very suspenseful shots, um, hope, hopefully piquing people's interest of what else the book encompasses yes and you use the word slashed through i don't know if that's um what, what maybe that's something that's subliminal in your your thinking <laughs> what, what is the most, yeah, what's the most exciting scene in in this uh edition red sunset drive oh my goodness um there are several but um i guess one of my favorite scenes that i really enjoyed writing is when Drago's um, woke up kind of uh, in a cave down by the Des Moines River, and he is adventuring out. It's, you know, Halloween night, and um, he realizes, you know, something is seriously wrong with him, and he really does believe, because of the time period he was born in, that he was bewitched, and... His that whole scene where he comes face to face with the current world, you know, and everything that just basically confuses him because he's never seen before. And then that is his first meeting with Brett O'Shea and um, a female private investigator who also plays a key role in this new book. That sounds like a wonderful scene for a movie trailer, should you ever produce a movie. Uh, keep me in mind, I, I can be a background something or other. I can eat the food and, 
and uh, enjoy the atmosphere. I'll do something. Anyway, the, okay. this, this book is titled Red Sunset Drive, A Ghost and a Cop Series. My guest author, Jan Walters. Uh, Jan, you mentioned York Street trailer is out there, so if they do a search under Jan Walters, they should be able to locate mm-hmm. that and also your books. Is that correct? That's correct. My website is www.authorjanwalters.com. And the book trailer is there, as well as information on all the other books that have been published so far. Exciting. And they can also find this book at Amazon and other major booksellers by requesting it by your name, Jan Walters, and find out about uh, the other books you have produced. Again, the title is Red Sunset Drive, A Ghost and a cop series. Thank you for joining me today, Jan, and sharing your story. And best of luck. I see the future, and the future looks bright for you. Thank you for joining me and sharing your story. Well, thank you very much, Jay. I uh, really look forward to visiting with you. Fantastic. I'm certain that in the near future, we'll have an opportunity to visit again and talk about the next installment in a ghost and a cop series. Thanks again, Jan, for joining me today. Okay, thank you. My pleasure for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. When your focus is to lose weight or maintain your present weight... Exercising effectively to burn the most calories is crucial. You want to give yourself every advantage to burn as many calories as possible. One good tip is to do your strength training exercises standing up so you can keep your heart rate up. Another tip is to perform multi-joint exercises when you can. For example, as you're doing a forward lunge, add bicep curls while you're coming up from the lunge. Another example is to execute a wide squat. And as you're coming up from the squat, perform a shoulder press. By doing these multi-joint exercises, you're putting more demands on your body, keeping your heart rate up, and working more muscles at the same time. The goal is to burn the most calories during that workout. I'm Annette Hammond. To hear other fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. The title of the book, Customer Karma. Why stop at a one-night stand when you can have a lifetime relationship with your customers? And the author is Arjun Sen, and Arjun joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Arjun. Hi. Good morning, Steve. Thank you for having me on the show. Great to have you with us. Now, Customer Karma, I think we all know have somewhat of a feeling about karma, but I think it would be really good for you, from your point of view, to define it from your point of view. What is good karma? You know, my definition of karma comes from learnings from my grandma. She would tell me stories growing up, and one of the things she would instill in me is karma is all about what you do. It's all about the focus on the word is about action. And based on what you do, you get reaction back. So in some ways, it is very similar to Newton's third law of physics, which talks about every action has an equal and opposite reaction. But the only difference in the concept of karma is causality, 
which is you need to do great karma to your customers or in life, not because you expect the results, but just because it is the right thing to do. And by doing the right thing, good and right things happen. Absolutely. And you put yourself in the best position to get results back. I like what you say. Good karma is cultivated by heartfelt good action. So people will really feel that sincerity from you. Totally, absolutely. And that's one of the things which are very important is if you and I were in a business dealing, for me to truly understand what Steve needs is incredibly important. And that's the reason for me to engage from my heart. Without that, it would become giving you service level one with option two mechanically, which does not touch you. So what you talked about is very important is good karma from the heart. Good karma from from the heart. And I think we can all relate on a real basic level. We're talking about relationships. It doesn't matter whether it's business, family, friendship, uh, just the meeting that new person, uh, you know, in a, in a, a store or at a restaurant or in a business setting. It's all about how we treat others. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about this, I guess, one thing of this real-life relationship, customer relationship. You can't put business relationships away in some kind of a business box. It's a real-life relationship, as you emphasize. So tell us about the importance of first impression. So to me, just like if you meet a person, the same way with a business, when a customer comes in, the first instant the customer decides whether this relationship or their the brand has any connection or availability with the person. So that is incredibly important to manage because this happens spontaneously from deep inside. The same way in a date, the first impression at the end of the first impression, you put the person in one of three buckets. One, what am I doing here? Versus, wow, I see amazing potential. Versus, I don't know, let's see how it goes. So the first impression is a great place to start. So it is a process. It needs to be carefully, not only thought through, but felt through. That's what I'm hearing from you. Again, it all comes from feelings from the heart. Absolutely. You've written your book in a corporate language that we can relate to. Now, there's many uh, business books out there, and often, as you put it, they're really not relatable to what you're going through. So you've got a, a vast background. Tell us a little bit about your background so we can better understand how you can understand what we might go through. Yes, so to me, in the corporate world, I have been in the restaurant industry where every experience is created for every guest, one guest at a time. Started at Pizza Hut, then went to Boston Market, then Einstein Bagels, and then was at Papa John's. And after that, when I started corporate uh, consulting with Corporate World, I worked with a lot of hospitality, retail, and restaurants. And in every case, what I learned is something that you related to earlier was when we focus on customer relations, we always started with customers. 
But over time, what I real, realized is the relationship and the commonality about relationships, whether it is customers or human relationships every day, is similar. And once you get relationships, then it's very easy to see what you would do in the corporate world. And if I may give one quick example, once you see the relationship, if you were single, Steve, for a second, would you put an ad in a dating site with your picture with a coupon on it go out <laughs> with me over the next two weeks and I buy you a drink with a fine print up to $6. <laughs> so if you won't do that in a relationship, why are we trying to buy customer business in, in our transactions with these short-term gimmicks which does not build the long-term relationship. So it's like you just pointed out in the restaurant world, uh, every time a new customer walks through, that's a new person, a very unique individual, and they need to be treated that way. Absolutely. So to me, I look at marketing is very simple. It is an invitation from the heart. And if marketing is an invitation, and let's say if my family invited Steve, your family to our place, I could then greet you in one of two reactions. One is, wow, Steve, buddy, I can't believe you made it so excited. Or the other reaction could be, really? You're back again? I can't believe it. So to me, the whole thing goes with connection from the heart and how do you respond? Because that's what the customer cares about. So it's about customer satisfaction. Yes, it is. What's the best way then to develop this long-term relationship when you're going to avoid these gimmicks, as you pointed out? What is the best way for having this continual relationship that literally is going to bring back the customer? And, of course, the bottom line is you pointed out, and I think we all understand this, it's about the cash register ringing. Absolutely. You got it right. At the end, it's all about the cash register, how many times you open and how much money you put in. And if you start right there, the valuation of a customer makes us all change our perspective. If I had a coffee shop and you came in and asked for a free refill, and on the board it says $2 for a refill, I will hesitate giving you the refill. But on the other side, if I right away sit, pause for a second, and realize Steve comes twice a week, every time spends you know, approximately $10, which is $20 a week, approximately $1,000 a year, which is $5,000 a year, the light bulb goes on. I realize my whole business success depends on you, Steve, which means instead of now making you look at the board which says refills are $2, I ask you to sit down by saying, Steve, would you just sit down for a second? I'll brew a fresh pot of coffee and bring it to you with the condiments. Because I really think that whole attitude shift changes. And I think once you feel it, you don't need user manual or anything else. You really need to put one customer at a time and business becomes incredibly successful. So you are using real-life business scenarios to point out how to do this in your book. Absolutely. And to me, that's the part about the book is you would not find 23 laws of customer satisfaction. 
because you know those rules and laws don't work the book is more about you calling your corporate buddy who shares his success and failure stories and i emphasize failures are equally important from success so each person who reads the book will have their own takeaway on how to use it in their world so there's no one solution but i'm just sharing my experiences from different corporate experiences well i want to read a couple of 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 folks who have read your book and have given you uh, quite a great review one said Arjun has a brilliantly simple way of looking at a business through the eyes of its customers. If more brands could do the same, true customer loyalty would be less elusive. That is, uh, I think, eye-opening, if you pardon me, but through the eyes of its customers. That's the way we have to look at our business. Yeah, first of all, you know, I'm really flattered with the review and if i take everything i've talked about in the book to me it's all about one reader if one reader likes it and feels that he or she got value from the book and takes time to write this review i really think you know the journey i started i have accomplished and i'm really fortunate and grateful that at least one person feels this way and that i think is the power in every business is one person at a time giving them what they need of actual true value that connects to them. Another reviewer said after re- after reading customer karma you will find it impossible to think about your customer interactions in the same old ways. It's more about it's much more than just the pleasant hello and uh, how's everything and is everything uh, well with your product that we've shared with you it's it's really i guess it's a as you've put it already it's not a formula it's a real life interaction with sincerity coming from the heart i i guess that's the best way as we've already pointed out how else can you talk about it absolutely and that's the part if you look at is in a relationship no two days are the same which means if you are living a relationship with your significant other with a user manual it just doesn't work this is not a train that goes online it just flies anywhere and everywhere there are everyday challenges and that's the part where the reflection from the heart comes out and the second thing if i point out to this particular review what the person reflected so well is once you get the commonality between relationships and when i told you about the example of using a coupon in dating you were amused because you know we don't do that so i really think that is the power is once each person in our own way get the parallel of relationships i really feel this would be life changing for people because they cannot go back to the old way of customer service using a user manual And as you point out, your book will not give the reader one road map for all situation. Instead, it is sure to trigger thoughts on what you can do differently. So that is your ultimate goal, is to help people get out of their comfort zone and start looking at customers in a much more sincere, heartfelt way. And absolutely. And I have fun doing it because, think, if you, when you read the review of the two 
you know individuals who it just hit you know hit hit me right deep in my heart i just felt something amazing and that is so addictive so to me i think that's exactly what each person once they go little bit outside their regular routine jobs and touch customers lives first of all the values of the reward and the returns that they would get is immense but more importantly it just adds excitement and meaning to jobs which i don't think exist in a routine you know just coming in open a cash register follow schedule a b c d it just doesn't it's not there in that particular of a mechanical robot like job the title of the book customer karma we've been talking to the author arjun sen arjun what's the best way to get your book you can get the book at amazon.com or barnesandnoble.com it's also available at itunes or anywhere you can get uh digital copies of the book you can also check the website of the book customer karma karma with a k customerkarma.org customerkarma.org well thank you so much arjun for joining us on iuniverse radio thank you steve for having me on the show i truly appreciate this you have a great day iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.